Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, welcoming you to another week of Going Deeper Online. As always, I'm joined by some fabulous friends. We have my old friend Mark Bertrand from Southwestern Ontario. We have Miranda Webster from deep in the heart of Texas. Uh, we have, and Crystal, last week, I apologize. I think last week I said that you are from Calgary, Ontario, which I'm sure does not even exist. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> Calgary, Alberta, which wants to be in Ontario, obviously, but but isn't. Uh, <laughs> that just made it worse. I'm sorry. <laughs> from Calgary, Alberta, fantastic Calgary, Alberta, and uh, and then Jesse Stewart from uh, Glendale, Kentucky. So thank you, welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, one of the things we stumbled on uh, a couple weeks ago that I think has been very well received. People have been very thankful for it is uh, we have been introducing new books of the Bible as we come to them, and uh, new letters, uh, new epistles, and uh, I've heard from several people that that's been very helpful, and so I thought we'd continue on with that. Last week, uh, Mark, I think you introduced for us uh, Isaiah, which was very helpful. Uh, This week, our two new uh, epistles were from the New Testament, so we had James and 1 Peter. So, uh, Miranda, you just recently facilitated Bible study on James. Is that correct? I have in the past. Yeah. So when you said that, yeah. But I, so I, I thought that introduce... would work out well. Why don't you introduce cool. James, and then I'll, I'll introduce First uh, Peter. Absolutely. So um, James, kind of when you have an introduction, you typically see the same types of things whenever you're looking at the book. So one of the things that you look at is the author of the book. So uh, James is written by the brother of Jesus. And a lot of Bible scholars really see that as in the title in verse one, where it says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that he just says his name is James. So the simplicity of his title really give give us only really two options of the author. So one being either James, uh, the apostle or the disciple of Jesus, um, or James, the brother of Jesus. And the date when James was written kind of rules out James, the brother, the son of thunder, the disciple, because most likely he had died by the time that it was written. And so James, the brother of Jesus, most likely became a Christian um, or a follower of Christ after the resurrection. 
and he was a leader of the Jerusalem church and is known for their and in church history or the church tradition tells us that he's given the title of James the Just, which is pretty um, true as you kind of read through the wisdom literature of James, you see this um, idea of wisdom and um, that kind of a title really does seem to fit him. So he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion and that they're, they're scattered among the nations. So they're most likely uh, Jewish Christians, but the, the application of the letter can go beyond that to both Jews and Gentiles. And some think that this is the first book of the New Testament, that is a very early book. And um, we can kind of see that we some put it uh, i don't i don't have a date written down but an early point in um in the scriptures and as i've already said the genre of the book or the type of writing that it is is that it's a letter but it also is some people will call it like the proverbs of the new testament it's a wisdom literature or it's a commentary on jesus's teachings throughout the sermon on the mount we see some of these collection. So you can look at James like a collection of short sermons or homilies and that they're themed and grouped together by this practical wisdom literature. So it's really it's really good. Um, there's some controversy which we don't necessarily have to get into of whether or not like Martin Luther, kind of a fun fact, Martin Luther didn't want to include James in uh, the canon. Well, what did he know? Right? You know, I mean, 95 theses and all. Come on. Come on, Martin Luther. Yeah, but of right. course, we find a lot of uh, truth, which we don't necessarily have to, to go into how it was accepted as, mm-hmm. um, you know, as scripture. Very good. Hey, I just realized uh, because we, we uh, prayed just before we went live, uh, we didn't pray as a group once we went live. Uh, and I meant to do that, but I kind of lost track of where we were going. Crystal, just before I introduce First Peter, uh, would you be willing just to open our time in prayer? And this is, think, this is like saying grace after you've already had an appetizer. So you can pray backwards and forwards. Will that, will that work? Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks. <laughs> Almighty God, I thank you that in a world that is constantly shifting and changing and uncertain, that you are a solid rock that we can grab onto. And I thank you that we have a savior who is able to save to the uttermost um, because he always lives to make intercession for us. It's such a comforting thought, Lord, in these uncertain times that our, our future is secure in Christ. And I just pray now as we talk about your word that you would help us by your spirit and that our hearts would be warmed by, by what we encounter. And I just pray that we would be able to um, stir one another up to love and good works. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, it seemed to me anyway that every conference I went to or every new book that was coming out was based on First Peter. I don't know if you remember that. There was, uh, I think, the Shepherd, um, the Bethlehem Pastors Conference. There were three or four uh, conferences that were all based on First Peter, and I think to some extent that was probably because uh, there there had been a bit of a changing in the tide in culture and. First Peter is an ideal book of the New Testament to go to when you are just facing the first um, the first whiff of headwinds in the culture, and I think as as uh, particularly in the states as Americans began to feel as though they had lost control of the culture and we're starting to actually feel the the hostile gaze of culture for the first time, 
all of a sudden, First Peter uh, came to the top of the pile in terms of the, the sense of relevancy. Uh, first Peter is unique. It is the uh, first book in the Bible that addresses the issue of uh, persecution from a Roman perspective. In the earliest stories uh, in the New Testament, of course, the, the antagonists, as it were, those who are opposed to Christianity are all Jews, right? We think of the Apostle Paul, that, that before he became a Christian, he was a Jewish uh, persecutor of the church. And uh, the earliest controversies in the church were, in essence, intramural controversies be between Jews who, who uh, were lovers of Jesus and, and Jews who were not. And, uh, and then the earliest controversies inside the church were controversies as to whether you had to become Jewish before you became a Christian. So that was sort of the, the first round of, of Christian trouble and, and difficulty was with Jewish religious authority. Uh, from the Roman perspective, uh, they originally just viewed Christians as an odd Jewish sect, uh, and you can see that in the stories of you know Paul's uh, run through the through the court system. The, the Romans couldn't figure out what are you talking about. We don't care, you know, what one Jew thinks and, and another Jew disagrees with. That's not our thing. Uh, but then First Peter is really the first book of the Bible that addresses the issue of uh, Roman state persecution. And uh, initially, anyway, uh, this there was no official Roman state persecution behind First Peter. Rather, uh, the issue was the Roman culture was beginning to be aware of Christians as a distinct group. First Peter was written to uh, to to Christians living in what we would call today northern Turkey, on the south coast of the Black Sea in Pontus Bithynia, and what they were suffering was uh, economic and social marginalization. So. Tom Schreiner has a great quote. Your, your friend, Tom, uh, Tom Schreiner, Jesse, uh, says, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends. So this is mild persecution, and Peter basically writes to these folks to settle them uh, and to, to keep them from panicking. So he says things like, now, who is there to harm you if you're eager for doing good, right? So just keep doing good, keep being socially valuable. Don't rise up and with pitchforks, uh, you know, against the local governor, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, do your job, hold your ground. It's a steadying letter. And, uh, and, and then interestingly, we know from history that actually Pontus Bithynia became a region where uh, some of the first outbreaks of persecution outside of the city of Rome occurred. Pontus Bithynia became a hotspot of persecution against Christians. And 50 years after the writing of this letter, uh, there was an outbreak of formal and fatal state persecution against Christians, the first one we know of outside the city. And so in AD 112, the emperor Trajan sent Pliny the Younger to investigate this new group of Christians that had become such a powerful force in Pontus Bithynia and it actually disrupted the local economy. Uh, that would be a great thing, by the way, if Christianity grew so much in a region that it disrupted buying patterns. So he sent uh, Plenty the Younger to investigate. He uh, arrested several Christians under torture, uh, was able to figure out what it is that they were doing, what they believed. In the process or in the course of his investigation, several, uh, a significant number of Christians were tortured to death. But then the emperor Trajan called off the persecution. It was very short-lived because uh, they discovered that Christians were amongst the most valuable citizens in the empire. Uh, they loved one another. They cared for the poor and the sick. And they just decided that uh, whatever nuisance uh, they were by being different was more than offset by their positive social contribution. So they called off 
the persecution. But in essence, First uh, Peter was written in the, in the early days uh, before bad had gone to worse. And it was Peter basically just saying, hey, listen, settle down. Uh, Christians do not run into the barn at the first sign of rain. We hold our ground. We have factored in a bit of a price here. Uh, we expect that there will be blood, that there'll be some tears. We expect that there'll be some hardships. We do, after all, follow a crucified Savior. So hold your ground, do your job, and let's get this harvest into the barn. That's the, the sort of the, the overall message of First Peter, which I think also explains why it's been such an attractive letter in the last couple of years, because it is a great bracing letter for people rediscovering the reality of hardship. All right, what did I miss, and uh, why else uh, do, you, do you love either First Peter or James? You can jump in on either. Not all at once, though. You have to be sensitive to one another. All right. I found James to be a good one for me this week. It was very convicting just seeing how he held up that measuring stick for Christian yeah. behavior, um, you know, and, and very convicting um, in ways that I'd fallen short. But at the same time, he has these little hopeful bits in there, yeah. um, you know, like, like in 4-6 where he says, but he gives more grace, you know, yeah. just when you're feeling like, oh, you know, or, or draw near to God and he will draw near to yeah. you, you know, cause there's such a temptation when you're convicted of sin to like run away from God, but instead, you know, just this idea of repenting and, and uh, coming back to God and, and, and that he would then draw near to us as well. I just found that quite encouraging. Very good. Anyone else want to jump in there on, uh, on first Peter, anything I missed in my introduction? Good, good introduction. It's, fascinating to consider the author and Peter's history, you know, as, as a man who gave way yeah. uh, and, and denied Christ and was restored. And, and just to see how thorough that redemptive work was in him, that he, here's the guy who is saying to everybody, listen, don't run away, uh, stand fast. So, but yeah. good job, Paul. Yeah, good word there. I mean, the, the empty tomb and the gift of the Holy Spirit can, can turn cowards into martyrs pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, last week uh, we did, I don't know how much it was. It was probably 70% of our, our program we spent talking about numbers, which is interesting. Not numbers as in math, but numbers as in the book. It really is. Uh, it is amazing how many of the, the archetypal stories of the Bible that we all love and that really lay out the contours of faith. It is remarkable, the high percentage of those that are found in the book of Numbers. And uh, while we, we probably, you know, overspent our ratio last week talking about numbers, there's one more story, uh, Mark, I wanted to come back to. In Numbers 20, there's that fascinating story. It's kind of the, the, the bookend story. Um, you know, early on in the wandering in Exodus uh, 8 or 17, they, they come to the, to the waters of Meribah, and, and there's that story. And, and there Moses is told to strike the rock, and he does. And, and we talked about that as anticipatory providence, you know, this marvelous story. And then late in the wandering, you know, right after the death of Miriam, they come around full circle. It's, it, it has the feel of a makeup test, uh, right? Like, so you, you, you bombed your biology test, you got 21%. And then, you know, your professor has mercy on you, gives you a makeup test, and you get 23%. Uh, it, and it, it just, it, it's, it's a remarkable story, but then it, woven into that story, there's this very odd, uh, detail, this very odd aspect where, um, Moses strikes the rock again, but this time is condemned for it and is actually told he won't, won't be able to go into the promised land. 
So what in the world is going on here, Mark? Why, why was it okay to strike the rock the first time and not the second time? Un unpack this story for us. Uh, we, it's funny how, I mean, we want to come to Moses's defense and you often find, I think we often find ourselves um, quick to defend the sinful person and slow to uh, defend God's honor. But this is a, this is a, a case of, of God being discerned. There's a lot of things going on here, but really quick. And, and all of this is pretty much right there in the text. Um, Moses, the people complain. Um, in some cases, when the people complain, God says, uh, I, I'm going to cut them off, and Moses pleads for them. But in this particular case, God is particularly gracious and merciful. He's already made provision. There's a rock there ready prepared with water that is going to come forth. He says to Moses, this is what you do. Go and get the rod, uh, that staff that you have carried, you know, uh, before the people. Go and stand before the rock. Speak to the rock. Water will come out of the rock. And Moses, and it's interesting, if we, if we want to get into the psychology of Moses and the psychology of COVID-19, Moses is having a bad week. His yeah. sister died yeah. at the beginning of this chapter. His brother is going to die at the end of this chapter. Um, but he comes out and he, where God was gracious and merciful, Moses is angry and vengeful, you bunch of rebels. And then, and this is one of the cardinal errors, he says, shall I bring forth water from you? Watch this. And he takes that, whacks it a couple times, and out comes the water. Um, what God says to him afterwards is, uh, um, uh, the Lord said, oh, hang on, I'm backed up here. Um, chapter 20. Um, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, and this is really key, and you may not have caught this, because you did not believe yeah. in yeah. me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Um, that word, the Hebrew word there for belief or unbelief, uh, is exactly the word that is used at uh, Kadesh Barnea when the people hear the report of the spies mm -hmm. and they do not believe God and they said, we will not go in. Yeah. And so w when I preached this for my congregation quite recently, you know, I said, if, if you have a president or a prime minister to whom the laws of the land do not apply in the same sort of way, you would call that unjust. Right. And, and we have a real issue with that. Moses, in this moment, shows the same sort of unbelief and lack of trust and lack of faith as the people did. And the consequence is the same. God says, you will not go in. You will not set foot on that land. Mm -hmm. And in Deuteronomy, Moses appeals it. And God says, no, I am settled on this. You will not go in. Um, blasphemy is a part of this. Um, usurping the place of God. Um, but what is fascinating, if I can take a second longer, is Moses finally does get to go in. He finally does set his feet upon the promised land, um, but it's not when he expected he would. But he physically stands there on a mountain um, alongside a, another guy who was a great hero, but a hero who was flawed. Both Moses and Elijah are flawed heroes, both of them catch a glimpse of the glory of God on Mount Horeb. Uh, both of them fail to live up to what they ought to be. Both of them appear alongside Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration discussing his departure. 
And what's really interesting is Peter, when he sees them, says, and we know the story of the transfiguration, he's amazed, he's stunned, he wakes up, he says, let's build three shelters here. And I really think what Peter is saying is, look, we knew Jesus was great, but now I can see that Jesus must be as great as Moses and Elijah, the great heroes of our faith. And in that moment, God removes Moses and Elijah and Jesus alone is left because he is without peer. And part of the thing this story does for us is it, it shows us Moses is one of the greatest figures of all of scripture. He is not without sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Mark, you hit on the key line there uh, in terms of uh, that. Is, I think that is supposed to get our attention where it says, because you did not believe and you go, wait, wait, wait a second. It's not that he didn't believe. That's what you think at first. You, you go back and you say, it's because he wasn't careful in his obedience, right? Like God's, said speak to the rock and obviously Moses wasn't listening and he was just thinking about what happened last time last time he was told to struck so he did he, he he wasn't careful in his listening he didn't he didn't obey but did he disbelieve I I love what uh, Gordon Wenham says here he says whereas Christian theologians often contrast faith with obedience this dichotomy is unknown to the Old Testament mm -hmm. in in the Old Testament disobedience, is unfaith, right? We would charge Moses with disobedience, but God says, no, 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 the issue is unfaith because the, the two are intertwined. And, and of course, I, I would even be a little stronger here than, than Wenham is. I would say that I'm not sure that's just an Old Testament thing. That's a, that's a New Testament thing, right? Like John the Baptist in John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. So he the opposite of, of belief is, is disobedience, right? And then Jesus, of course, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, right? So there, there is this connection in the Bible between obedience and faith that feels wrong to us, but is, but is very clearly there in the text. Jesse, were you wanting to jump in? Yeah, I want to just say yes and amen. I think Mark did an excellent job. Um, describing what's going on in this text. And I loved how you drew out the transfiguration passage. I hadn't quite thought of that. And it draws to my mind, uh, Ligon Duncan's sermon. Uh, yeah. It was in 2012, his Elijah sermon. And that's that was uh, amazing. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I think it's very true. And, you know, Numbers 20 is such a theologically important text mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Uh, you know, Psalm 95 quotes oh, it, nice. Psalm 119, Deuteronomy 32. Um, one of the questions that uh, maybe more speculation, I, I'm not sure, you guys can tell me, um, that I have is I wonder if there may be actually a second reason, a more ultimate reason for which God is angry uh, with Moses in this text. I think obviously like he, he's not careful uh, in his obedience. But I wonder with now that we have the, the full scope uh, of the canon, uh, I wonder if this was really meant to paint a picture of what happens when God's word is spoken. Uh, when the message of God is spoken, rivers of living water uh, pour out of hardened, rocky hearts. Mm -hmm. Or uh, perhaps this even symbolizes the rock of Christ who dispenses the living waters of the Holy Spirit, John 4. Um, I don't think you have to say perhaps, right? I think it's 1 Corinthians 10 where, where Paul says it is. The like rock. the rock was Christ. I, I wondered that too. I was, you know, I was thinking that same thing. And, you know, I, I wonder if it's it's almost a both and in this secondary meaning. Yeah. So meaning that he dispenses the living waters of the Holy Spirit into someone's heart. Um, and the rock could mean both Christ and the heart of the person receiving God's word. Because, of course, uh, we're in Christ. We're one with Christ. Well, it introduces this whole interesting thing. I mean, 
obviously I tr I try to keep my mind focused on the obvious, you know, surface meaning of the text, meaning the most obvious thing, because wild speculation you can, can lead to all kinds of problems. But but I think it's okay once you've affirmed the obvious message, right? It's okay to wonder what else might be going on. And I, I wonder whether something was obscured here, whether, uh, you know, God was trying to show uh, this, this, this gentle nature of Christ that he, he waters us in the desert. He, uh, he sustains us through terrible trial. And, and that picture, right? Cause Paul says that was the picture. The rock was Christ. That, that picture was, was, was meant to be an, uh, an important Old Testament type and was meant to say something about Jesus, was obscured by Moses' anger. You know, anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. And, and you can't tell a Jesus story filled with anger. I'm wondering if, that, if that's part of it. Yeah. 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 Now, I mean, again, maybe that's a little speculation, but certainly uh, it, 1 Corinthians 10 gives us a little license for that speculation, I would say. I think Gordon Wenham actually says in his commentary, you know, oftentimes a rock imagery is used of God in the Old Testament. So this could even be obscuring, you know, an instantiation of God's presence in some sense. Yeah. Uh, and well, if Gordon Wenham says it and Paul, the Apostle Paul says it, then I feel even better. <laughs> I love Gordon Wenham. That's one of my favorite commentaries. Well, yeah, we just, we just they take things away from this passage that may or may not be the primary I, at least one thing that you should take away is uh, in the midst of a very frustrating, bad, difficult, tiring situation, yeah. don't lose your temper. Especially, yeah. I think one of the things that's really interesting is there's another situation earlier on where the people complain they want quail. And yeah. Moses does question God, but he questions God privately. Whereas in this particular situation, yeah, before, the before the people of God, in his official capacity as God's representative, he steps forth and demonstrates a, a blatant disbelief. And, and I think yeah. that's why the consequences come. So as spiritual leaders, Christian leaders, and this is a good reminder for me um, in the age of COVID-19, um, you know, check your uh, frustration before you get in front of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good word. <laughs> And could, could I add one more thing? Sure, please, yeah. So, is uh, you know, when I was reading this text on my own in my own personal devotions this week, uh, it, it sort of brought to light Paul's statement uh, to me in, in Galatians six one, which says, "Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Yeah. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too yeah. be tempted." And I feel like this is illustrative of of what's going on in this text is that these people are angry, living in unbelief, and Moses trying to rebuke them acts in unbelief and anger. And so, you know, uh, we need to be careful that we um, correct others if we have to with a spirit of gentleness, a heart of humility, and words seasoned with grace. We're going to move on uh, to Isaiah in just a second, but I just had a, uh, a question come in from a listener about uh, Numbers 22. Uh, the, the great Balaam story. And, uh, and so just while we're here, I'll throw it out to the panel. You know, I, I get, didn't give you any advance warning on this, but it's a well-known story. I think you will be okay with it. So in Numbers twenty two twenty, God tells Balaam to go with the Moabite officials. Why then is God angry with him when he goes? I actually, it's, it's funny. I, um, I made a note. So I think I've told you this before, but I, I go, I, I use journaling Bibles for my morning readings. And I go through um, 
I take about four or five years and I make all kinds of notes and stuff for my kids because I have five kids. So I'm working on one right now for my son. And I made a note on this, on this very thing uh, for my son. And uh, I'll just read the note that I put here. I said, sometimes we shouldn't do what we are allowed to do. <laughs> Using your, your full permission sometimes gets you into trouble. Sometimes it says things about your heart yep. that do not please the Lord. And, and I think that's the issue. Like, why are you going? Like, why are you going there? Uh, why would you go when you can't curse what God has blessed? Why, why would you do that? Are you, trying, are you trying to see if there's a way you can make money? What in the world is going on there? Anyone else want to jump in on that and say something else? Balaam, uh, God says the first time to Balaam because the first group come to him and invite him to come and curse Israel. And he says, I have to go ask God. God yeah. says, you may not go. You may not curse. And then they come back with more money and more honorable princes. And Balaam says, uh, let me ask again. Yeah, why would you ask again? And God says to him, uh, yeah. okay, you may go, but you will not be able to curse. And every step that Balaam takes towards Balak is revealing, yeah. I want to find a way to get this money. The only exactly. Balaam I'm looking for a loophole. Is to get paid. And so in yeah. that moment, he, he reveals the corrupt nature of his heart. And when you get to the end of the story, and I don't know if we'll talk about this next week, but there's a you've got to look for the ribbon. But Balaam is a bad guy because when you get to chapter 31 and you find the bodies piled up of the Midianites who lead these people into uh, a, adultery at Peor, they find Balaam, and that's what he's painted with for the rest of his life. Yeah. 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 Great question. Thanks for sending that in. That reminds me, I'm doing a terrible job in terms of hosting, but uh, I'm, I should probably say, Please send in your questions. Thank you for that one. Uh, and we will, we've got a plan of what we're going to talk about, but we don't mind uh, chucking the plan if, uh, if questions come in. We're here to help. We're here to serve. And uh, I should probably also say where you're finding us tonight, wherever you're finding us, you can probably find us on uh, TGC Canada's Facebook page. You can find us on Into the Word uh, Facebook page. And then also we put the recording up on the Into the Word YouTube page. So it would be super helpful probably in terms of finding that if you could go and subscribe to that channel, that'll make it easy to find this. And then the next day, so the day after, we turn this into a podcast so that you can listen to it while you drive to work or walk the dog. And uh, we stick that up. You can find that as well on the Into the Word Facebook page. And also if you get the Into the Word app, it'll come right to you. So thanks for reminding me of that. Paula, you were the listener that sent in that question. We appreciate that. Keep them coming. But uh, let's move into Isaiah now. <laughs> I, I was a, Before we went on air, I was kind of apologizing to Jesse because two weeks in a row we've thrown him big controversies. But I guess it's, uh, you know, it's good, right? You're, you're, you can handle it. Uh, last week we gave you Hebrews 6, which might be the most controversial passage in the New Testament. This would probably be on the list of top 10 controversial passages in the Old Testament. Uh, in Isaiah 7, we have Isaiah 7:14, very famous passage. Uh, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Jesse, give us the historical background for what that was originally about or what the original context was for that prophecy. Tell us, who, who is this virgin? Is it a virgin or just a young maiden? And uh, who is this child? Is it a, a child born in the time of Ahaz? Or are we talking about Jesus here? Walk us through this, uh, this difficult passage. 
Well, Pastor Paul, this text is so rich and deep. I'll do the best I can and yeah. I'll, uh, I'll send it over to you guys. But historically, <laughs> Isaiah 7 describes when Judah, the southern kingdom, was invaded by Israel, the northern kingdom, with the help of Syria, which is called Aram Damascus in this text. Uh, the king of Judah is King Ahaz, and God tells Isaiah to take his son, go to Ahaz, tell him basically that a maiden has conceived a son, and when she bears the son, she's going to call him Emmanuel, uh, or God with us. And by the time the child is weaned off of his mother and he's eating big boy food, uh, curds and honey, Israel will be delivered and um, your enemies will be desolated. And so that's that's historically what's what's happening in this passage. Now, linguistically, what does virgin mean? Uh, the Hebrew word here is Alma. Typically, uh, we would expect the word Isha here to denote uh, just the common word for a woman or wife. But this seems to be an intentional word placed here to describe uh, a birth outside of the normal pattern. Right. Um, on the meaning of this word Alma, I think J. Alec Motyer has uh, some a great resource here. He argues through a linguistic study that the noun Alma is never used of a married woman in extra-biblical literature, uh, that is literature outside the Bible. And also we do know of two places in the Bible where Alma refers to an unmarried woman, uh, Genesis 24, Exodus 2. And so uh, Matyr seems to be saying that Alma is the closest Hebrew noun for virgin. And it's interesting, uh, in my own personal study, just looking at the Septuagint, uh, it trans the Septuagint is a translation of its own Hebrew manuscripts, its own Hebrew borologa, and it translates virgin as it translates that as virgin as Parthenos uh, in Greek. Now, of course, this the Septuagint was written long before even the time of Christ. The New Testament writers then pick up uh, on this language of Parthenos, virgin, from the Septuagint. And so uh, they see this as specifically, Matthew sees this as specifically fulfilled in the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know whether exactly or not there was an actual virgin who gave birth in the time of Ahaz. This text seems to indicate that. Maybe you guys can shed some light on that. Um, and so if that did happen, uh, maybe Matthew would understand this virgin to be foreshadowing the Virgin Mary. Uh, but if this did not happen, um, then this is a direct reference to Jesus in the New Testament. And I don't think that would be an unprecedented reading from Isaiah because Isaiah uh, frequently throughout his book will name things, outrightly predict things in advance, hundreds of years in advance, like King Cyrus calling him yeah. uh, name hundreds of years in advance. Yeah. Good. Anyone else want to jump in? That's a, that's, a, that's a great introduction to a very thorny problem. And we were talking about this before we went online as well. You know, the goal when we introduce these tricky topics is not to, you know, solve, you know, split the, the Gordian knot, as it were. Um, there's a reason why some of these passages have, have been considered, you know, naughty, not naughty as in NAU, but, you know, Gordian naughty. Um, because they are, they're tricky and they're hard to untie and there's a lot of moving parts and uh, there are linguistic issues, cultural issues, hermeneutical issues. So that was a great introduction, Jesse. Thank you. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Just from like understanding the text too of often with these prophecies, I was, I've been taught that there's like an original meaning for that original audience. And then there's yeah. this greater purpose or a greater meaning. Right. So when I was doing a little bit of study, not nearly as much as Jesse or some of you trying to understand this is that 
in some of the books that I was reading, reading, they were saying there's a significance with the children of Isaiah and that each of the names of the, chi the ch each child's name is rep uh, representative of a concept or an idea yeah. that's going yeah. on. Like Hosea, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in this situation, um, this child being born of a maiden or a virgin, being called Emmanuel, the way in which what I read is that by the time that that it was Isaiah's wife who would have this child, they didn't take a literal meaning of a virgin, like someone outside of Isaiah, but that I guess Isaiah has this son and names in Emmanuel. I don't know. That's, is well, that that's one of the views. Like, okay. there, there are multiple views on this issue. Uh, one is one is what you're saying that it, it refers to the the prophet's child, and that he's simply saying, you know, a baby's going to be born, and before that child can can know, you know, his right hand from his left hand, uh, this is what's going to happen, and so the child becomes a sort of living prophecy, like as you say, like with Hosea's children. Um, that that's a view. Another is that it's a a general prophecy that had a, a sort of small scale fulfillment that Ahaz would stumble upon this unusual child named Emmanuel and watch it grow up. And that would be his clock, so to speak. But then the ultimate, you know, uh, fulfillment of this pattern is in Christ. But, but actually uh, like, so Machir, he doesn't take it that way. And I would say the standard, I don't know if I want to use the word standard because it's too, too complicated for a standard, but I, I would say maybe the classical evangelical interpretation is that Ahaz was being given an opportunity to demonstrate faith in God, that, that in essence, the prophet was going to Ahaz and saying, listen, you've got all these weird plans, right? Like you're going to try and make an alliance with Assyria against uh, in northern Israel and, you know, Damascus, and you've got, you're working it, right? How about this? How about you trust in the Lord and and wait for his deliverance? And, and Ahaz pretends out of piety, like, oh, you know, who am I to test the Lord? And God is angry, like, there is a time to test the Lord. When I'm giving you the opportunity to lean on me, that's the time. And because you don't, then, you know, then the prophecy is in essence pushed into the future where ultimately it lands on Christ. So this is what Machir says. He says, when Emmanuel was born, now he's talking about Jesus, the heir to David's throne was an unknown carpenter in Nazareth. Thus, Isaiah concertinas the centuries. For when Emmanuel was born, he inherited only the memory of a kingdom and a non-existent crown, and it was Ahaz's fault. As we shall see in the course of this section, Isaiah adjusts the historical perspective. See, that, that's the key, adjusts the historical perspective. But he uttered no lie when he made Emmanuel the immediate heir of the Ahaz debacle. Now, that's a great quote, largely because it's the only opportunity in life where you can use concertinas as a verb in a sentence. Uh, con a concertina, meaning he contracted the centuries like an accordion because of Ahaz's lack of faith. That there was an opportunity for a more immediate fulfillment, but that was lost due to unfaith. And so it got caught up in the spiral of prophecies that land ultimately on Jesus. It was deferred to the, to the life and, and ministry of, of Jesus. Uh, that's Machir's take. And I would say, I, I think it's fair to say that's the classical evangelical take. Mark, you're shaking your head. You're not sure you buy the word classical. I, I, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, this is one of those passages where, where I don't get too concerned about 
Uh, let me say it this way. I don't think there was anybody walking around in the days of Mary and Joseph looking, thinking, boy, one of these days a virgin is going to conceive and have a child. I think there's certain prophecies that uh, until they happen, right, uh, are, are just, they're just, they're veiled. They're, they're mm -hmm. there. They're right. They're right. They're hidden right in the open. And then it happens. And the, and the, the, the preacher points to it. The, the uh, apostle or whoever's writing the, the gospel writer says, there it is. It's always yep. been there. And here it is displayed. A so, ton of prophecies are like that, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Where it's only in retrospect. Yeah. I think, I, I think you, would argue, you could argue that particularly the detailed prophecies, like the ones with minute details like this one, they only make sense when prophecy has become history. And it becomes, in essence, a way for you to be confident that God is ordaining history. They're, meaning they have less predictive value than, than they have sort of suckering value on the other side when you're wondering, am I going to get run over by the truck called history? But then you're able to say, well, no, wait a second. Actually, now when I look at this, God has been moving this and, and weaving this all along. Yeah. Uh, like I see the way Daniel was reading history and, 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 and you know, he's reading Jeremiah. And now that prophecy has become his history. It's, it's happening outside his front door. And you go, okay, now I see. I think that's the way it works a lot of the time. Which is and I, that's why I always I don't get caught up in the minute arguments about you know the book of Revelation. I figure when I'm nine tenths of the way through everything in that book, I'm going to go, oh, <laughs> I see now. Yeah, it makes more there, sense in retrospect. You said there just what I was exactly going to say is yeah. I think there's a lot of things in Revelations and Daniel and those sort of things that after they really happen, you'll go, yeah, there it yes. was. That's what that was. Yeah. Ah, the mark of the beast. Now I understand. <laughs> well, very good. Go ahead, Jesse. As well, so uh, there is certainly climactic fulfillment in, in Christ. What we see yeah. in Christ is the fullness of God made flesh. It is God with us. He, he is not just like one of Isaiah's children uh, bearing a name which points to a greater meaning. He is the meaning, meaning that he is... He is God made flesh. He is God among us. Yeah. And so there is there is a climactic fulfillment, certainly. Absolutely. And a lot of prophecies work that way, where there is a there's an immediate fulfillment, there's a pattern that is established, but then that pattern is enlarged and lands climactically on Christ. And I mean it's it's marvelous to see how these how there are different types of prophecies and different ways that these patterns land on Christ. But sooner or later everything lands on Christ. Yeah. Well, sticking with uh, with the uh, Isaiah and, and some of its marvelous mysteries and marvelous passages, uh, I had a, an experience this week that I've had many times before, and uh, I'm not a mystic, and, and I don't want you to overread this, but sometimes it feels to me like the RMM Bible reading plan is prophetic. Now, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but, I, but what I mean is sometimes I just open up my Bible in the morning and I, I go to the daily readings, and it feels like these daily readings have been arranged specifically to minister to my circumstances. Now, I think that's just part of the marvel of, of the way that the scriptures are put together. But I certainly had that experience this past week. Um, we're, uh, we're reading Isaiah chapter 8, 11 to 13, and uh, boy, it, it felt very prophetic. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy 
all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So God tells Isaiah that he's, he's not to go along with the people. The people are getting sucked into all kinds of nonsense, conspiracy theory. There's even a, a, an idea going around that um, Assyria has funded uh, or, or uh, sponsored, as it were, Isaiah's prophecies to undermine military morale and all kinds of nonsense is floating around. And, and God says, listen, you're not to get involved in that. You're not to get sucked into that. You're not to be one of those people obsessed with potential secondary causes for political global events. You are to be focused on certain primary causes, i.e. me, God says. Like, I'm the one you should be focused on. I'm the cause behind everything. You know, let other people worry themselves into the ground over potential secondary causes. And I just felt like that was the most prophetic and timely word I can recall, because we've entered into the conspiracy theory stage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like at, at first, it was just an excuse to, you know, get off work and, and uh, you know, have a seven-day Netflix fe uh, feast. But, but now, it, it, you know, people are scared, people are nervous, people are angry, and we're looking for someone to blame, and we're trying to figure out who, who's, who's responsible for this mess and all kinds of silly theories are being floated around. I just felt like this was a marvelous reminder that we're to be people obsessed with the primary cause, right? Like, what is God doing? That, that's, that's our business. So I was just curious, did that passage strike any of you as remarkably timely, eerily timely and, uh, this, this week? Or, and are you, are you seeing the same things that I'm seeing in, in terms of the stage of this pandemic? Well, I think conspiracy was certainly a buzzword in the news More in the last ever. week or so. <laughs> so yeah. this does seem pretty timely. Um, but I just think it's so sad when I look at this verse in Isaiah, because you've got these this people who God has brought out of slavery into freedom to worship him. And now they're so afraid that they're turning and believing all of these conspiracy theories and they're putting their trust in these pagan superpowers um, instead of God. And here they've got you know, God's presence, they've got the promises of God. And, you know, I think there's definitely some parallels to what's going on right now with the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, what is it about this, this stage in the moment, this stage in the, in the pandemic that, that has caused so many people to get involved in these conspiracy theories, do you think? Um, well, yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, I think fear is a big theme in Isaiah. And mm -hmm. I think people are, are afraid right now. Um, you know, I think the pandemic has taught us that we're, vul we're vulnerable, you know, and I think a lot of people feel powerless and anxious, and they don't want to be blindsided, and they don't want to be, you know, caught unawares. And they, they, I think we just, there's something in us that wants someone to blame. You know, yeah. like, what's the cause? Yeah. Who can I blame for this, the, the circumstances we're in? And, um, you know, I think there's just that desire for that little bit of secret knowledge that's going to, you know, open mm -hmm. everything up. And then we'll, we'll, we'll be smarter than everyone else. We'll get it figured out. And we feel a little bit more, I think, powerful then, um, you know, then it just kind of helps with that feeling of, of helplessness that everybody has right now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else want to jump in on that? Well, sorry. The only thing to add, I kind of to piggyback what Crystal is saying is just like when you read, you're reading Isaiah and chapter seven and eight kind of going together at this time of um, war and political upheaval. And so there's all this uncertainty and instability 
And so trying to understand or predict what is going to happen and, and you have, right? Just like we've already said, God's saying, trust me, don't trust your political, like making political allies or the things that yeah. you can see yeah. instead trust in me. And so the same, the same temptation to trust um, other things that we could potentially, some people would rather trust in a conspiracy theory rather than trusting God. You know, I mean, like they could understand, um, even without understanding, they would understand or choose that over really putting their hope and trust in God. And we're not saying that there isn't such a thing as conspiracy. Sure, like, I had somebody push, you know, sort of push back on. Uh, I was trying to tamp down some some conspiracy theory in, in in my neck of the woods, and someone say, "Well, you know, there there are conspiracies. You know, there are evil people who plot." I said, well, of course there are. Like, it's interesting. I, I'm, I was preparing just uh, either today or yesterday. The days are all blended together. But uh, a podcast episode on um, Psalm 83. And uh, in Psalm 83, it's all about conspiracy, right? Like, so the, the, the psalmist goes to God and, he, and he's, he reports a conspiracy. He says, they say, he's talking about all these nations, right? They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Verse 5, Psalm 83, 5. For they conspire with one accord. So he, he goes to God and reports a conspiracy theory. And I love the title that uh, J. Alec Matier gives for that section of the psalm. He says, he calls it, Conspiracy Met by Prayer. And I'm just going, bingo, bango, right? Like, that that's exactly, no one's saying there aren't conspiracies. We're just saying, that's not our business, right? Like, we, we're, we're not going to counter conspiracy with conspiracy. We're not going to unravel conspiracy. We're not going to defuse. You know what we do when we feel like events are conspiring against us? We go to God in prayer. Like, we fear the Lord. We go to Him. He's the cause that really matters. And I just thought, you know, that, that psalm is the, is the answer to this dilemma. I think the media certainly also doesn't help. There's a great market for fear right now because mm -hmm. there are real issues, but okay. you think the media tends to exploit our fears, you know, fear sells, it gets views, but at the expense of amplified anxiety, panic, and fosters, you know, these sorts of things, speculation, uh, possible conspiracies, but whether there is secret plotting or not, just like what you guys are all saying, I agree. It's, it's not the point. The point is that God has permitted this pandemic in his dark providence and we need to humble ourselves before God during this time. We need to go yeah. to prayer. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think when we, we start to, just what you're saying, Jesse, like when we start to understand God's sovereignty in all of this, then all those little fears just kind of get put in the proper place, you know, instead of becoming just so big that, that, that we start obsessing over, well, I like how Paul said, first causes and secondary causes. You know, we start obsessing on all these well, what's the cause? Who did this? Who did that? And it's almost this scheming that becomes obsessive. And, and you forget that, you know what, COVID is here. Well, one, because we live in a fallen world, um, but also God is sovereign over all of it. And I think yeah. if you get that piece in place, then, then all the fears and all the scheming, they just kind of become a bit smaller and they go into their proper place. Well, that's just, a great segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about because it's an aspect of providence. M Miranda, did you want to jump in? My segue can wait. Okay, I was just going to say, just like logically too, you're not going to find out like from a Facebook meme or like a, a docu-series that you self-publish, like what? really what's going on behind it. Like if you think about like conspiracy theories and like what we're saying, yeah. it's not sometimes does happen. It's all, always some like discredited scientist on Facebook who got yeah. fired for stealing lab equipment. And you're like, stop it. 
Uh, you're like, this is not an academic journal. This is like, this isn't an investigative reporter. Yeah, like, come just on. Some random, you know, so like thinking a bit logically as well, like just, you know, don't lose your head over it. And yeah. of course, ultimately trust in the Lord. That was all I was going to say is just thinking. No, that's, that's a good word. We, we give way too much authority. We were talking about that. We had great discussion before we went online tonight. We, we should have recorded that. But, uh, you know, we, we talked about how, in essence, these, these little microphones right here and this equipment that we're using, Recast, has democratized uh, the, the publishing uh, business, in essence. Any, any Yahoo, like us, with, with one of these marvelous, you know, microphones can get their voice out there and can present a theory. But, you know, these are $200. Like, there's, meaning they're not, the, the level, the entrance fee to the public square is very low right now, which is great. I mean, it's great for what we're what we're doing if you've got something true to say, but it, it also just means anybody can put stuff out there. Like it used to be, you had to get it past an editor. It had to be well enough researched that somebody would pay the money to have it printed on paper. Um, but now, if you've got a two hundred dollar microphone, you can say whatever you want, and if there's a market for it, if the fear, if the environment's right, 10, 10 million people will pass it around on Facebook. Uh, it's uh, it, it is. It's an interesting time. It's the Wild West right now of, of information. Uh, but, you know, just going back to what Crystal was saying about secondary causes. The Bible has a lot to say about primary and secondary causes. And some of the stuff it says is downright disturbing at first. Uh, and, and that leads me to another passage I wanted to take a look at out of Isaiah. Um, I, in Isaiah 10, there's I, I I'll be honest, as a Bible reader, I've been reading through the Bible pretty consistently you know, since I was a young teenager. And this has always, it used to take me a lot longer than it does now to get through the Bible. But every time I came to this passage, it, it dropped me like getting hit with a two by four. I could not wrap my head around this. Uh, th this is one of the stumbling stones in scripture. Isaiah 10, let me read it to you, five to 12. This is God speaking. Ah, Assyria. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, Assyria, they're oftentimes described as the, you know, the Nazis of the Old Testament. These were the bad guys. They, uh, they were famous for terror. They were often considered the first terrorists. They, uh, when a town under their control or a nation under their town, under their control, uh, dared to rebel, they would go into the town and rip open the bellies of all the pregnant women and smash fetuses and babies against the wall as a deterrent against future rebellion. These were the bad guys. Ah, Assyria the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. The godless nation here is Israel. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpit? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So God actually says, I told Assyria to attack Israel. I, I told him to trample Israel down into the mud. That being said, 
the motives of his heart were wrong. The things he said about me were blasphemous. And so when he is over and when I've finished using him, I will turn and judge him. That's what this passage is saying. And I'll be honest with you, as a, as a young Bible reader, this it, every time I came to this passage, you, you had that half heartbeat where you're like, should I even be reading this book? What is going on? How can God justify using the Nazis of the Old Testament, the, the, the worst bad guys of the Old Testament, to chastise his... How could he direct these people towards his people? And then if you can get your head around that, you got another question, which is, if he sent them, how could he then judge them for doing what they did? That is dark providence. Help, help me figure that out. The, the pause is appropriate. <laughs> it's a head scratcher. I, I know this one out to the panel in general. Yeah. I think at least with the second part of that question, Paul, there's always divine um, God's sovereignty and human responsibility kind of yeah. side by side throughout yeah. the scriptures where you have, you know, God using means he can use any nation he wants to. But then if people sin, they're still responsible for their own sin before God. And yeah. Scriptures just seem to put those two things side by side and then don't apologize for it. It's not yeah. either or compatibilism, or... as as Brother Don uh, likes to say. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, well, okay, I'll, I'll dive in for a minute. But uh, I, I think I would want to say that a little bit different than you said it, um, in that I, I don't think there's so much... A, God says that Assyria is the rod of my anger. It's not that God has said to Assyria, go attack Israel, uh -huh. but rather... Assyria says, what do I want to do? I want to trample everybody. I want to, and God... But, gives but in verse 6, he says, I send him. Yeah. I command him to take spoil and seize plunder. Okay, you're right. You're right, it's there. Uh, <laughs> it, this, this passage floored me. I, if I were to make a list of the 10 passages I wrestled with the most in my life, uh, you know, before, and, and I've, I've submitted to this scripture and I've come to love what it says, but I'm just saying... I could make a list of 10 scriptures I really had to wrestle with before I was trembling before the word of God. This is one of them. It's a toughie. So maybe I'll take a stab here. So certainly um, God's providence extends even over human sinfulness and God without himself sinning is able to use the, the sins of secondary agents like sinful human beings to yeah. accomplish good purposes, which means that the good that is brought out is uh, from God. We see uh, a similar instance of that, actually, I think a climactic in instance of that in Luke 24, where you've got Jesus um, uh, revealing that according to the, um, uh, the, the plan of God, um, the Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Acts 2.23. Yeah. But God knew... Uh, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified mm -hmm. and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so God actually ordained the worst mm -hmm. thing possible, which is that, that it would happen. And which was uh, the death of the son of God. Um, yeah, it, it, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You can't avoid that. Yeah. And, and this he, is, to be honest, with you, this goes, takes us right back to the passage we read a minute ago about conspiracy theories. This is God basically saying, you don't have time to worry about conspiracy theories. You need to be spending all your time trying to unra unravel primary causality, which is what we're doing right now. Like, 
we're, we could talk about this for hours and not get to the bottom of it. So what are you even doing moving on to secondary and tertiary causality? The other thing to consider too is just the fact of when, when this is coming, um, after you know years and years of the prophets telling the people to repent uh, yeah. from pagan worship and idols. And I think that that's important to, to understand that, that when the Syrians come against Israel, that this isn't just God being angry quickly. This is like God's steadfast love and mercy over generations and centuries of time and their warnings like people coming you know prophets being sent to to israel for them to repent and then the same you know so that happens in 722 when assyria destroys israel and then of course there's you know about a hundred years or 136 um when the babylonians do the same so i mean we've got this stretch of time it doesn't really answer like the knot again another of these knots how can god um use wicked people to accomplish his wrath and it's clear that the people deserve the wrath of god being poured out on them in israel they're unrepentant unwilling yeah. and people well, the like, idolatry in northern israel we we is crazy. in our minds we don't even have a category for it like i think in our minds we think you know the people in the old testament were were, they were very nice people, very religious. They they loved God, but they you know they just didn't know about Jesus. It's like, have you read the no. Old Testament? Like well, they it, they were sacrificing their children to the idols of yeah. Chemosh. They were there was there was prostitution happening in the temple compound. Like no 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 no. They, they, it was not a good scene. And the prophets and came. Like, and the whenever, prophets warned. Yeah, no, and the Northern Kingdom too. The tribe of Dan, whenever you get to Revelation, they're not even included in the list yeah. there because they've so apostatized that they're not even a part of the ultimate kingdom of God. I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. another topic for another but day. I, I just find it interesting that, that there's, there was a little conversation that went around the evangelical world and, you know, on, in the Twitter sphere or whatever it's called about, you know, would God use something as, as nasty as COVID-19 to chasten his people? And it's like, Wow, like have you read the Old Testament? Like one time he used Assyria. Mm-hmm. Um, I think God is really, really holy. I think sin is really, really serious, and I think we have been very, very pampered. Um, and uh, a good, thorough reading of the Old Testament will bump you up against a few of these passages that'll, you know, bring you up short when it comes to primary causality. Yeah. Well, that's a heavy one. Uh, let's uh, let's move on into something that I think is a is is a head scratcher for sure. Uh, as we move into the New Testament, James two. I have uh, I have a fondness for the whole James two thing, largely because it was uh, just there's it's associated with some stories of mine from university days. I went to uh, York University, did my undergrad there after going to Moody, and uh, I had a I had a professor who was very big into one of these new theories on uh, New Testament. I, I was a classics uh, and religious studies student. And uh, he was very big into this idea that there were competing movements within the early Christian church, that there was in essence a, a James movement and a Apostle Paul movement. And he based a great deal of that uh, in James 2.24, right? We, now, as so as evangelicals were so used to hearing the Apostle Paul say that we're saved by grace and by faith, that the, the first time as a Bible reader, you read James 2.24, it's about as much of a, of a heart stopper as the passage we just read in Isaiah. 
James 2.24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That phrase, how can that even be in the Bible? Not by faith alone. And you feel like, did R.C. Sproul approve uh, this translation? Like, that cannot be right. And uh, I had some fabulous uh, arguments with my professor, dear Professor Gray, uh, over this, this passage. Because I was convinced that, that it reconciled just fine with the Apostle Paul, but he didn't see it. So, uh, you know, help me out here, panel. Was Professor Gray right? Uh, was Martin Luther right? Who's, who's right on, on the relationship between the Apostle Paul and James and between faith and works? Well, I think, uh, I think Martin Luther, I think he said this, and I think he said it best. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Do you, do you know, I went looking for that quotation once because I love it. I've used it all the time. And you know what I discovered? Both Luther and Calvin said it completely independent of one another. It doesn't appear that the one took it from the other, but they both said it. Hmm. Not exactly that way, but they, they both said it. And so if you Google it, you'll discover that it is equally credited to Luther and Calvin. And which encourages you know, me. Uh, true then. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The, the way... <laughs> The way that you know uh, that you have the root of faith is yeah. by the fruit of obedient works. So a person is indeed justified by works. On the very last day, God's going to judge us by our works, but yet we will be saved by grace. Uh, we will be declared righteous, that is justified, on the on the basis of our deeds, which em, which uh, signify our faith, which bear witness to our faith, um, our fruit. I will be judged on the last day as indicative of whether or not we had faith. And so I think that's really what uh, James is getting at. James's paranetical literature, it's a paranesis, it's an exhortation. Uh, he's, he's saying, listen, bear the fruits of faith. You, you say, um, even the Apostle Paul said this, like you say that you have uh, faith, well, I will show my faith by my works, you know. So he says right. a similar thing in his own literature. So I don't think Paul and James are combative here. I think they're actually coordinating um, in this passage. Yeah, good. Anyone else want to jump in and add to that? Yeah. What, what's interesting, when you look at Paul and when you look at James, not only are they talking about faith and works, but they both take Abraham as the illustration. Yeah, they quote right? from the same passage, Genesis Paul, 15. Well, not, uh, yeah, uh, Paul... Uh, says you know abraham believed god and god credited it to him as righteousness but yeah. james when he's talking about abraham's faith uh working he talks about abraham up on mount moriah with isaac yeah um, yeah he quotes fifth, genesis 15 and 22 yeah yeah which is which is which is about 15 years later um yeah where you know so it, it's very interesting the two are very complementary and i i think whichever one tends to to rankle you a little bit more, you pro that's the one you probably need a little bit more of a dose of. Mm. Yeah, good word. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think a different, it's very hard to hold this road, isn't it? You can end up in the ditch on either side. And I think that's, that's the beauty of all these different letters and epistles and perspectives in the New Testament. James was clearly concerned that people understand that you can't, that, that being a follower of Jesus is not merely a matter of knowing some facts, right? You believe that God is one. Good. So do the demons, right? Like the, the demons have, you know, highly orthodox theology. They would get 100% on their theology tests. That doesn't make them Christians, right? Mm -hmm. and, and whereas on the other hand, you know, Paul is very eager to under, for people to understand. You, you cannot work your way 
in into heaven. You, you've got to, uh, you know, you've got to put your faith and trust in in what God has done in Christ. So they're pushing back against different ditches, but they end up on the same middle road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, just before we get to, oh, go ahead, Jesse. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I really. Actually, or were you saying something too, Jesse? You go oh, ahead. Both, well, both of you jump in. Either one. Well, well ladies first. Crystal, go okay. ahead. Okay. Okay. I was just going to say I thought it was helpful in James two twenty two, how I thought James sort of qualified what he meant by justification by works when he said concerning Abraham, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was yeah. completed by his works. I just thought that was a helpful clarification. Just that you know, that then works are this, just like you guys were saying, the the evidence or the manifestation of, of, of faith at work. Um, and I was also just thinking that, you know, with Paul, like he, he often talked about, you know, well, the obedience of faith, or I thought of Ephesians 2.10, you know, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's a consistent idea that faith and works and, and obedience that they they go hand in hand and both Paul and James I think you know clearly say that even though absolutely, they're emphasizing absolutely. different things in Romans four and James two um, with that quote. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Crystal. I, now I I don't I don't want to put anybody on the spot and I don't want to go too far offline here, but I I do sort of, a thought just came into my head. Uh, I I do think that some of this problem is the the problem of doing theology in English. It, it, like the the Greek word pistis, um, I don't think translates but well into English. That's that's my opinion. I don't think any of our English words do it justice, right? Uh, like when we, it, sometimes we translate it as believe, sometimes we translate it as faith. Uh, but the, sometimes when you read it in context, it really means more faithfulness or allegiance. Like it has to, it, it has that loyalty. It, it has that obedience thing that. Uh, you'll show who you belong to by how you behave. All of that is included in the word pistis, but none of that is really captured in any of our English translations. So I think some of this is just the, the trouble of of doing theology in English. Does that resonate? Absolutely, absolutely. And I only wanted to add two more passages that I think coordinate with everything we've been talking about. Hebrews 12, um, pursue peace with all men in, this, in the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a, a, mm -hmm. a yeah. I believe, a practical in their life. Also, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a yeah. practical righteousness. This is not a forensic declared righteousness. Uh, this right. is a practical righteousness in your life that exemplifies true faith. Yeah, I mean, of course, that, that takes us full circle back to what we were talking about out of, out of Numbers 20 with that Gordon Wenham quote. Anybody who was raised in the Old Testament, right, as, as both James and Paul were, would not have understood a definition of faith that didn't include the idea of precise obedience to the one that you're loyal to, right? That was the mo that's the moral of the Moses story. So, uh, yeah, it's it's inconceivable to to me that that Paul and James weren't on the same page here. They were just pushing back against different uh, different confusions, as it were. Uh, before we get into our closing song, oh, Mark, did you want to jump in? We're having such a good conversation on James too. No, you're good. Um, before we get into our uh, our closing psalm there, I'm just having an eye on the clock. Uh, I'd love to spend a little bit of time just talking, maybe more ground level. We've we've been operating at a fairly high level of you know theology and grammar here. Uh, just talking street level, pastoral, helping people mature and respond to what God is doing. 
There was another passage this week that I felt was very prophetic or providential, whatever term you prefer. James 4, 13 to 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Again, I, that feels like a passage for this you know, pandemic, for this moment. I, I think one of the things that has changed is our sense of certainty about tomorrow, right? That this has made us all feel uncertain. It's made us feel like all, all plans are tentative. Is there a sense in which that can be a good thing? I know it's very uncomfortable, but is there a sense in which that could be a good thing, both for us as believers and for our unbelieving neighbors? Yeah, I think it's. No, you can't just shake your head on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I think it helps us to be less presumptuous with God and and just more humble in all of life. You know, I mean, it kind of even ties back to what you guys were saying about Moses, you know, God wanting to show compassion to his people by giving them this water and Moses just wants to get angry at them. You know, I think we're, we're kind of, we're presumptuous with God in, in all of life. And I mean, reading James, you just can't help but feel, wow, I'm, I need to be a little bit more humble in how I'm approaching my judgments, my opinions, my plans for tomorrow, all of it. And I think this pandemic is, is helpful for us to. Um, you know, and I think as Christians, if we're intentional, um, like I love James 3.17, where it says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. I mean, just these descriptions, I mean, it's something to aspire to as a Christian, um, you know, going forward. And, you know, I think it's a hopeful thought that, you know, we could, uh, we could go forward as a church and be this people that's promoting peace and unity and, and humility before God. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think too, the verse 16 helps to understand uh, where in 16 it says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So this idea of boasting in the plans and in the duties and the, the, the things that they're going to do, how they're going to this town or that, and I think that if anything, there is a, like Crystal was saying, just this humbling. Um, no one would have thought a year ago that everything was going to be shut down at schools, you know, that we would be quarantined. And um, it's not that, I, I don't think that this verse is saying don't make plans. It's like, like have an open hand that ultimately yeah. every plan that you make, you are not the great causer of that. And God is ultimately over your life and, as a believer, we should live in humble submission to what he has in store for us. Mm-hmm. I agree, Miranda. I, I wonder if we're, uh, we as a culture live in fear of the pandemic more than we do of the God who is sovereign mm-hmm. over it. You know, I think of, you know, we've been talking about Assyria. Think about the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, uh, and how they responded to Jonah. What a, what a fantastic response of humility and contrition before the Lord. I would really hope that our culture would have a, a humble response to the Lord like Nineveh rather than a tentative response uh, to God uh, during the times of pandemic. And then like Pharaoh, harden your heart after it passes because you really fear the pandemic more than you do God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word, Jesse. 
I do. I, I mean, I'm praying that there'll be a great season of, of openness on the other side of this pandemic. And I believe that there will. But I'm also aware, like you said, that, you know, if uh, if Exodus teaches us anything, it's that uh, when a plague is withdrawn, uh, the the hard heart gets hard again pretty quick. So, yeah, let's I mean, let's pray for these unsettling effects to to be enduring. Mark, were you uh, were you you look like you picked up your Bible to say something? I dropped my Bible. Made oh, you dropped your Bible. <laughs> well, at least it was in your hand. That's a good sign, brother. Good job. Right on. Well, uh, so I wanted to, uh, we've, we've been using a psalm to kind of bring us in for a landing, uh, which is a, it's a great blessing to, that uh, for this stretch of the RMM, we have uh, psalms. Uh, that, it's one of my favorite things about the RMM. It seems like two out of three days of the year, uh, you've got a psalm uh, to work through. And uh, I thought we could maybe land this week with Psalm 60. Uh, psalm 60 is, I, it, I hope it's a timely psalm. We've, we've been talking about passages that feel timely. I, I pray that this is a timely psalm. It's a perfect psalm uh, for the turning of the tide. Uh, in the first part of the psalm, there's obviously been some kind of a fatherly discipline, some kind of disaster uh, military or otherwise, and and they're aware of it. They're aware that we have done something to lose the favor of God. We've done something to invite uh, a fatherly chastisement, and but then they respond the right way. Uh, they are redirected by it. And I love what Tim Keller, uh, in his Songs of Jesus, has has. I assume this must be one of his favorite psalms because it's some of his best work in the book. He he says this about the redirecting anger of God. He says, God's anger is that of a father who is unconditionally committed to his children, but because of that is furious at their sin. So the, the presumption is at the start of the psalm, they've done something, and God responds. There's, there's some kind of you know, woodshed moment, for lack of a better term. There's some, some fatherly discipline of a severe nature. But then they do what they should do. They repent. They respond. They humble themselves. They acknowledge the error, uh, and they get on their faces before God. And and Keller comments on that. He says this fatherly anger, full of unfailing love, when understood, is a transforming motivation that makes us willing and able to change. I just thought that's a that's a great place to land because that's as you know as we were just talking about that's my prayer that this that we're not going to just forget this this fatherly moment where i think some i think the lord has been moving to redirect us as a church and as a culture and uh and and children respond dis- different to discipline uh you know in every family when you get together there's usually the discipline uh stories the legends that you tell and and there's always one sibling in every family who only needed one spank in their entire life, right? Because that was the redirecting anger of mom or dad. And it just put them on the path of righteousness. And then there's the kid who tells the story of how it always had to escalate. You know, the, uh, the timeout went to the washing your mouth out with soap, went to the spank, went to the wooden spoon, if you're my era, and uh, even beyond, which we won't mention on camera. But, but, you know, there's always that sibling as well. And it's the reminder that not all children respond the same way to the fatherly anger of God. And my prayer is just that we'll re- respond well, and that this psalm could be the psalm for the turning of the tide. When the lesson is learned, and the favor is, is restored, and the help and the blessings are revisited, 
Um, so anyway, that's that's why I thought it would it might be a fun uh, psalm for us to to land with. Jesse, would you would you read it to us, and then we'll just use it to close our time in prayer. All right, let's read Psalm sixty. Oh God, you have rejected us. You've broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches for it totters. You've made your people experience hardship. You've given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and answer us. God has exalted, God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet of my head. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom, I shall throw my shoe. Shout loud, O Felicia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? Verse 11. O God, help us against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. I remember the first time I read uh, that psalm, the, the middle part is weird. You're like, why are they describing God, you know, tossing off his clothes as he comes home from work? That, uh, that's a, a strange anthropomorphism, you know. Well, I put my, my robe over here. I flung my tie over this country, my shoe. And, the, the, you know, of course, the imagery is of God's total comfortable sovereignty, right? Everything is, is God's. That's why we don't get caught up in these secondary causes and, oh, who is this, and what's this nation doing, and what about these people? Ah, it's like it's all God's. It's all God's house, right? And, and I, these verses at the end, what version were you reading from, Jess? Uh, the Nazbi. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got, oh, God, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So the psalmist knows you know, when hard times come, no point in talking about where else they came from. They came from God, right? And, and so the hard times come from God, but then also the victory comes from God. It is he who will tread down our foes, right? That's where our focus has got to be. That's, that's our business as the people of God. And uh, here's a psalmist who has responded to the anger of God, who has made the changes, and who believes he's now in a place to, to call down blessings. And uh, so I just thought that'd be a good psalm for us. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that we will have heard uh, whatever it is you're saying to us right now as a people. I, I pray that we'll get our eyes off of these other secondary causes. Lord, there may well be conspiracies and goings-on. I'm not saying that there aren't. Wicked people are always looking for opportunities to plan and scheme. I, I don't know, but that's not my business, Lord. What I know is that you have a plan and a purpose and a message for your people in this pandemic. And I just pray we'd hear it, Lord. Are you saying something about our worship? Why Why have we been shut down, Lord? We're all so eager to petition the government and do this and that to open the doors. Lord, why did you close the doors? Have we thought about that, Lord? What are you saying? Have we heard you? Oh, God, you have, you have shut down our economy. You have, you have shaken one of our gods. Lord, what is it that you're saying in that? 
Lord, you've rattled our security. You've made us feel as though our lives are but a vapor. What are you saying in that? Oh, God, I pray we would have heard it. I pray the message would not be lost. I pray that our hearts would remain soft. And I pray, Lord, that you would position us and keep us in a place to receive your blessing and favor. Lord, of course, we know that that place is in Christ. I pray that there would be a great settling into Christ. Oh, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the child who takes refuge in you, Jesus. Let that be the, the impact and the outcome of this difficult season, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me, friends. And uh, thank you, all those who have joined us uh, on Facebook or on YouTube or those who will listen later uh, on, on the podcast. We're thankful for you. Thank you for sending in your questions. Keep doing that. And uh, we look forward to being back with you next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another episode of Going Deeper Online. Good night and God bless. Before you.